It's good to be back. It's good to be on. Um, I had a super mild case of COVID. I was out and out and about and doing stuff around my house and felt a little stuffy, and so that's why I wasn't here last Sunday. But thank you uh, for praying for me, and I'm A-OK and back in Adam. Uh, during this past year, it's one of my... Uh, it's been kind of a pleasure for me, those of you who have complimented me because I've been on a bit of a weight loss journey. And I lost 40 pounds this year, and so far, even with Thanksgiving, I've been able to keep it off. Uh, but most of the credit has to go to my beautiful wife, who Donna, who just prepares all this healthy food for me every day. If I only eat what she gave me to eat, then I'll be okay. And uh, she really encourages me to stay on track and shops well for me. And to be kind of straight with you, I'm really not the easiest person to get along with when it comes to food selection and food preparation. Uh, I'm extremely finicky and picky, and I can be a little bit critical and whiny about my food. And so Donna really deserves way more credit uh, for putting up with me. And I'm super, super finicky when it comes to flavors. If I bite into food and I taste the flavor or seasoning that I don't like, that's the end of that meal for me. I don't, I don't want anything else. But, but one, of, one of the flavors that I really, really like is salt. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and Jesus talks about salty food in this passage. And, and perhaps you're, you might be asking, well, what does this have to do with the question of human identity? except to highlight that I'm just a weird specimen of humanity. But all fall, since September, we've been talking about the question that we ask of ourselves as humans and that so many are, are hearing about in our culture, who am I? And human identity is a really big issue these days. And Christianity actually has some really, really meaningful and helpful things to say about it. And what I wanted to do as we looked at this topic together is to show you why a biblical understanding is helpful. And Christianity is not just an old-fashioned religion that is fading away in the face of modern answers to what it means to be a person. Christianity has a solid meaningful, and tremendously helpful answer to the question, who am I? And I'd like to suggest that the answer of Christianity is tremendously helpful for those who are seeking answers in life. I think of many of the modern answers that are put forth for who am I, and some of those aren't helpful at all for figuring out how to live a meaningful life in this world. And my hope through all of this is that you will be able to understand a little bit more about what the Bible says, a little more about why the Bible says it, and that you will engage the question more meaningfully in your own life and then in the lives of those that you have to do. We are in the home stretch today. This is it. We've come to our final message. And there's a lot more that could be said, but I want to end with this, and one of the reasons that we wrestle with the question, who am I, is because we find ourselves struggling to belong in this world. 
We want to know who we are because we want to fit in. We want to know our purpose. We want to know our reason for being. And that's why, why how we answer the question is so important. We've seen that the lens of creation paints a beautiful and meaningful picture about who we are. That we are, made, we are creatures made in the image of God. That we are unique individuals, body, mind, and heart and spirit. And we were made for family and we were made to give back to our culture and with our unique capabilities that we can work and, and, and have a vocation and, and, and do something meaningful for the world around us. We saw that the lens of the fall of humanity casts a shadow over that, that we have separated ourselves from God by our sin, that we are the strange admixture of good and evil and frustrated in this world, and we find this life ceaselessly frustrating, and it doesn't work the way that it should. But God in His goodness doesn't just wring His hands and say, ah, and turn away from humanity. Instead, he entered into this fallen world and began redeeming it over and over and over again. And most particularly, He acted in His Son, Jesus Christ, to rescue us from sin, to rescue us from the fall. He is transforming every part of who we are, body, mind, and will. And all of this amazing stuff that God has done for us by redeeming us and by transforming us isn't just so we can sit back and enjoy these little blessings and become fat on our happiness with God. Ultimately, God transforms us so that we might become a force of redemption to the world. So that we might become, as Jesus says, salty, not salty with bad language, but like someone this salty as Jesus was salty. Our passage this morning comes from a long message delivered by Jesus that's often called the Sermon on the Mount. And it's one of Jesus' most powerful teaching segments in the entire Bible. And taken as a whole, it is really one of the most ultimate expressions about what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the world. He talks about the kind of character we should have. He talks about what kind of right actions we should have towards others, how to pray and use meaningful spiritual disciplines in the world, how to avoid greed, how to avoid worry, and how to follow through on his teachings. And this little segment that we have talks about the influence that Jesus' followers are to have on the world around them. And to Jesus, being salty and the other images he uses of being light have to do with the positive impact that we are to have on our world, a redeeming impact. And what Jesus comes into a life, he makes that life good for the world. And I'd like you to think with me about what he means about being a redeeming force in the world. Four things. We leave a good taste, not a bad taste. We preserve rather than corrupt, and we are light rather than darkness, and we point others to God's glory for ourselves. Four things. Let's talk about leaving a good taste, not a bad taste. 
In verse 13, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall it be, its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Jesus mentions the benefit of the taste of salt, and I'm a big fan. But have you ever gone to, been at a restaurant and gone to shake out some salt on your French fries only to have the whole top of the salt shaker be crusted with salt and it won't come out? You can shake it till you're blue in your face, because, but it won't come out. Why? Because the moisture gets absorbed by it and it won't come out of the little holes anymore. And that's the problem with salt. It's very, very susceptible to moisture. As a matter of fact, if there's too much moisture, it becomes completely watered down, and Jesus says it's absolutely useless. It's just like dirt in the street, good for nothing. Have you ever used this expression or heard this expression? Well, that left a bad taste in my mouth. What does it mean? You went somewhere, you met somebody, you had a negative experience, and because you have a neg had a negative experience, you'll never go back there again. For instance, I've had one Subaru in my life. <laughs> and at exactly 100,000 miles, the engine blew up. That'll be the last Subaru I ever buy in my whole entire life. <laughs> Why? It left a bad taste in my mouth. <laughs> People really, really, really enjoyed being around Jesus. He was an enjoyable person to be with, not just a party animal. And it's not that he never said anything that people would disagree with. And it's not because he was always agreeable and didn't stand for anything substantial. No, Jesus was a rock and a pillar of truth. But he was always, always, always good. He was always loving. He wasn't fake or phony or pessimistic or whiny or a complainer. He was true and loving and good. He was a person of genuine integrity through and through. And he told his followers to be the kind of people who leave a good taste in the mouth of society around them. That is, we want to be the kind of people that other people want to be around and come back to. It means that we are good people to be around, we do the right thing, we love those around us, we speak with goodness and truth, and we treat others well. We represent our Redeemer well as we live our lives in the world. Well, not only do we leave a good taste, Jesus says we preserve good rather than promote corruption. Another well-known purpose or use for salt in Jesus' day was as a preservative. They didn't have refrigeration in the ancient Near East, so they would salt their meats and they would salt their fish in order to preserve it and make it last longer. I've mentioned before that my family used to vacation in Maine, and when we would go up to Maine, we would go for a couple weeks and we would always take our boat with us. 
And my father loved to fish, and we would go cod fishing, uh, land lighting, you know, a couple hundred feet of water, catching codfish. And if we were fortunate enough to catch enough codfish for ourselves and all the neighbors while we were on vacation, sometimes we would make salt cod with the codfish. That is, you would brine the fish in salty water, and then you would put it out to dry in the sun. It was kind of like codfish jerky. And it's kind of a delicacy up there. And we used to call it stinky fish, but it was kind of good. And there's a video of Tim Keller speaking in Great Britain to Parliament. And he spoke on this passage about the saltiness of God's people, the church. And he said things like this to them. Though the church is by no means perfect and has been responsible for many harms throughout her history. She has also been responsible for many positive and constructive influences on society as well, like the abolition of slavery, integrity in business, promoting arts and sciences, maintaining better families. The church helps preserve the quality of society by being salty. The saltiness of God's people in society makes the society generally better. That's not to say that the church doesn't have glaring faults and we ought not to deny those or try to pretend that they're not there. But the church has also had tremendous influences for the good of society. When we help marriages and families stay together and love one another, when we help the poor and promote racial equality and understanding among people groups, when we offer life-giving options to pregnant women who are afraid, when we offer recovery and support to those who are addicted, when we protect children and the poor from oppression and prevent the powerful from taking advantage of them, when we promote healthy regulations of businesses so that workers are not oppressed and wages are fair, when we care for the world and the creation and seek to be good stewards of the earth that God made us and gave to us, when we do business with integrity and seek to provide the best products and services at a fair price to others, all of these things preserve the fabric of society and are redemptive within our culture. And they prevent corruption. And they make a difference in the name of Jesus. Thirdly, we are to bring light rather than darkness. Jesus compares, says to the, in verse 14 and 15, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. He describes God's people as a city on a hill or as a lamp placed on a stand. And living here on the coast of New England, we know all about putting lights up high so that they can be seen, don't we? We call them lighthouses, and one of my favorite ones has to be, happens to be off the coast of Rockport, the dual lighthouses, the granite ones. They're made out of granite called Thatcher's Island. If you are traveling in the dark, and there was a city on the hill, you would be able to see where you were going 
and know where you were heading. And if you've ever taken a candle or a lamp and put it up on a shelf or put it up on a stand, you know that then it lightens the whole room. And we become like that camp song that some of, many of us grew up on as children, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Light makes things clear. Light makes things visible. It drives back the darkness and it enables you to see where you're going. Light often stands for good and darkness for evil in the Bible. Our lives are to be a force for good in the world around us. We are to be generous and giving and caring and looking out for others and not just for ourselves. We are to be welcoming those who are outcasts. We are to bring hope to those who are downtrodden and lost. We are to be, speak the truth with one another and speak the truth with the world. We are to be people of integrity who say what we mean and mean what we say. Our actions within society should reflect well on Jesus and the kind of character that He lays out for us in the whole Sermon on the Mount. Someday I'd like to study our way through that a little bit more slowly and take that entire passage because it's, it's so profound. Jesus warns us about judging, about lust, about hating and speaking harmful words. He talks about not showing off religiously, but just letting the quality of your life speak for itself. We are to be the kind of people who don't harm one another. We don't speak ill of one another. We don't gossip or complain. We are characterized by good things that we are for and not the negative things that we are against. We are involved in our community and we promote the good of the community in which we're involved. And the last thing that Jesus says is that it's God's light, not ours. It's God's light, not ours. Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus says that the quality of our lives in the community should be such that they cause people to give glory to God as our Father. A while back, um, I was interacting with one of my family members a family member who does not claim Jesus as their Savior. But as I was conversing with them and talking to them about this and that, they said, praise the Lord. And I was like, praise the Lord? I've never heard that word ever pass from their lips. Where did that come from? Well, here was the backstory. They were preparing to host a major event at their home and they found themselves behind the eight ball in terms of preparation and not physically able to face the challenge of preparing their home and their yard to host this major event. And a friend of theirs, we, we, we as a family didn't really know about it, but a friend of theirs, a Christian man, left his business, got in his car with his family, drove to their house, and spent the next couple days with them, helping them to prepare the house and the yard to host this event. 
And as a result of their impact on my non-believing family member, they were saying, praise the Lord. That's what Jesus is talking about here. He's challenging us to live lives that are such significant impact for good on those around us that people begin to say, praise the Lord, because of you or me. Not just that they think we're a nice person, not just that they think we do good things, not even that we're friendly or polite, but that we actually cause people to notice the glory of the God that we serve. Do our lives have a glory about them that points to the wonder of who our God and our Savior is? That's what it means to be a redeeming influence in society. People see God in us. That's what Jesus meant in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, when he said, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, so you also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. We are to love one another as Jesus loved us, and that kind of love is such a bright light that it points beyond ourselves to the glory of God. Loving Jesus like He loved is the ultimate God-glorifying act that we can perform. And when Jesus redeems people for himself, he turns them into a redeeming influence wherever in the world he leads us. When Christians answer the question, who am I? The answer in part is, I am a redeeming influence on my world, meaning I leave a good taste, not a bad taste. I preserve good rather than corrupt. I am light rather than darkness, and I point people to God's glory, not just to myself. When we become sons and daughters of God, we no longer simply live for ourselves and for our own selfish desires and for our own indulgences. We become gifts from God back to the world in which we live. We become an influence for good and right and truth and love. We hold the message of Jesus and we hold that message with the character of Jesus. This whole identity question that is dividing our culture, it needs a better answer. But not only does it need a better answer, it needs a better response. Meaning the people of God need to hold to the truth of God with the character of God. Identity is used to divide and isolate, to separate them from us, 
And the natural response of fallen humanity is to resort to hostile tribalism that is filled with excuses for us to refrain from showing compassion, care, and getting involved with those who are different than us. And when we become tribal, we're no longer known for what we are for, but only what we are against, and that's what unites us. We view those that are different from us as enemies to be resisted rather than fellow human beings who need to be reached with the good news of Jesus. And when the truth becomes an excuse to hate others rather than a hopeful message to be shared, then we lose the saltiness of our Savior and become just like everybody else in the world, treating others with disgust and as a threat to our own personal happiness rather than human beings that need gracious redemption as we, as we have come to experience it. A mature Christian in a fallen world answers the question, who am I, with this answer in part, I am a redeeming influence in my world. And the only way that we can be that redeeming influence is when we have drunk deeply and savored down to the very core of our essence against the tides of the world around us, the grace, the mercy, the love, and the tenderness of our Savior. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the gift of your word that challenges us to the very core of our being. And Lord, I'm thankful that we're not alone, that you have redeemed us by your grace, that you've poured out your Holy Spirit on us, and that we can know you and sense your love within and begin to turn around and reflect and show that love to others. God, help us that our works might give glory to you in heaven and that our light would shine before others so that they would see, see our good works and turn and give glory and praise to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.